Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today. All right, we are back in full effect in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. And I am here in the studio with somebody that's definitely... When it comes to activism, when it comes to thoughts, when it comes to how political structures can exist and destroy capitalism, this man has a wealth of knowledge in it. Rich Feldman, how you feeling? I'm feeling really good. It's an honor to be here, man. Thank you. Thank you. And then, like, really over the past two years, you've been back and forth in the incubator space a whole lot, uh, where we've done some projects with the Bog Center, some of the things you've been doing with your wife, just a lot of the works and telling stories in different ways. And it's been an honor just kind of connecting with you and having the opportunity to express creativity with you. So thank you for that. Very mutual. It's real. Like I said, it's a real treat to be here and do this. Yep. Like one of the coolest things actually uh, last year was like, your wife was like, I wonder, can you do this? And can you do that? And I'm like, I can do all of that. Just give me like a second, <laughs> you know? So it was cool. Just like uh, the idea of being a creative person and working with a person in that same space, hence incubating it is inspirational for me. So that was fly. That was fun. And when it comes to you, it's always about the work and it's always about the people. So let's let's start with the work and the people. Um, Detroit, what led you or your family to Detroit? Well, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Ah. And um, went to public high school. Uh-huh. My mom was a school teacher. And I have a brother who's four and a half years older who... When it was time to go to college in our family, he went to Brooklyn College, and it cost $25 or $27 to go to Brooklyn College. When, you mean for the whole year? For the whole year, for the whole Ain't year. Ain't that something? Ain't that and something? This, so this is in 1963, uh-huh. okay, when it was my turn to go to college. Uh-huh. My mother had already been a teacher in the teachers' union. The economy was still expanding in the 60s. Uh-huh. And I had to go to, I had a choice to go anywhere I wanted. And I wanted to come out to Michigan because they had good Big Ten football with Bubba Smith. Ain't that something. And, uh, but I didn't go to Michigan State because when you're a Jewish kid from New York and you want to go to Michigan, they, at that time Michigan State was solely, was predominantly an agricultural school. Mm-hmm. So I ended up at University of Michigan. Okay. And, but it was for Big Ten football is what got me out here. Mm. And uh, not that I was going to play, just because I loved listening to the, the sports on radio at that time. Okay, so it was one of those things going away. And then Bubba Smith, I think people may know him from movies more now, but a heck of an athlete, one of the first athletes, uh, as I'm going to tie together another Detroit is Different interview I held, uh, one of the first athletes to look at marketing and branding himself as well. And some of that was done through a Michigan State grad, uh, attorney Gregory Reed, who basically built a lot of the precedents for what we look at as entertainment law for athletes through representation of Bubba Smith, like early on, like this Uh, is because, because Greg's brother was an athlete at Michigan state. And they're like, man, you and this legal law stuff and Bubba got an opportunity for something. And he was like, figure this out, you know, and it's, and it's unique that opportunities present themselves like that. And uh, so that's, that's one of the wonderful tidbits of knowledge. I knew nothing about this. I really appreciate that. So when I came here in 67, I came with the intention of 
becoming a lawyer or a doctor. And okay. within the first month, because it was August of 67, the first speaker I heard was Reverend Clegg, mm-hmm. who eventually starts with the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Mm. And the MC5 and the doors. And my whole wow. world began to change as I got very, very involved in Students for a Democratic Society, support for the Black Panther Party, the first black action movement strike in 70, the women's movement, and essentially I was a activist during the anti-war movement and all those other related movement, significant movements. Now, now that is, talk about something deep. So Jeremoji in the foundation of Pan-African and African cultural Christianity. And a lot of people give that to Jeremoji and James Kahn. And then you said MC5, which is like a foundation of so much of the, 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 the gritty Detroit rock history. And then Jim Morrison, like that is a cross section of culture for you. Uh, like all within like a, a, a short span of time. And like in 90 days. I mean, I came as this, I had been introduced to some level of radical politics and reading Ramparts magazine. and mm-hmm. But essentially I didn't come with the commitment. I couldn't wait to get involved. But in 90 days, 67 represented, changed so much. I was introduced to so much. Yeah. And then that was also in the shadows of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. So being... Being on campus, what what was the feel like? Did 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 people talk about the rebellion in Detroit? Uh, was it even spoke of? What was the relationship between Ann Arbor and Detroit then? Because right now, it's definitely looking to really bridge the gap between U of M and Detroit. I think in '67 there were conferences and mm-hmm. there was conversations taking place, and um, actually when. Uh, this the speech that I heard at that time from um, from um, well, I can't think of his name right now um, Reverend uh, Reverend uh, Jeremoji Jeremoji Reverend Jeremoji yeah uh, and and you know it was part of a conference where James Boggs was at and Frank Joyce was involved. So there was always some relationship to Detroit as mm-hmm. what did the rebellion mean and what's happening in Ann Arbor. But essentially, it took a few years for me to really, really understand any of that. I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I got first involved in in uh, the anti-war movement and actually the Eugene McCarthy campaign, mm-hmm. uh, and then went to Chicago in '68. And when I came back from Chicago in '68 which was then the period of, of um, uh, Bobby Seale being arrested with other folks at the, the convention for conspiracy, to, for a riot or whatever they called it then. It was a police riot, obviously. Um, then I began to learn more about Detroit um, and it's Detroit's history and Detroit Rebellion. Uh, and then when the Black Action Movement comes about in 70. So it took a few years for all these relationships to, to, to connect for me. Okay, in 68, uh, you said you were at the DNC convention in Chicago that right now, I don't know how much people talk about it, but that was a very, that was a very pivotal moment in what, as you said, the anti-war movement, but so much more even than anti-war, because this was uh, uh, the, the, like, almost like the center of, um, of, of what was happening with 
Americans witnessing what would I say like um, witnessing the ways that uh, that that American politics were influencing the world and not in the way that the propaganda was presenting that information. So when I say Americans were witnessing this, it was other information already existing in that. Like a lot of the the roles of what people label as communism and like Paul Robeson and people like that, but on a grand scale, especially for white America, the you know, 68 Kent State, it, it was a, like a couple of incidents, but that DNC convention there is pivotal. Well, let's put 68 in a little perspective. In, in, so in January of 68 is the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. Yeah. And that's essentially the propaganda and military, uh, propaganda victory in the military assault by the Vietnamese against the U.S. And from then on in, the U.S. never wins a war. We can be violent across the world, destructive across the world, but that was the defeat of the U.S. empire and therefore was the turning point from 1945 where the U.S. was the king of the world after being one of the only countries in the Northern Hemisphere to survive World War II, mm-hmm. um, that the empire ends militarily at that point. And mm-hmm. every other attempt, no matter how violent the U.S. has been, whether it's the Middle East, Latin America, or other places in Asia or in Africa, uh, has not been able to show victories. It only shows continued defeats and continued violence and barbarism as, as a nation. So that's beginning of 68. By the middle of 68 is when Martin Luther King is killed, is assassinated, yeah. uh, is killed. So all of this is brewing during this time. And, and so there's, there's the unity of the anti-war movement learning from the freedom civil rights movement and now the black power movement emerging in the 60s, um, capturing the imagination of what's possible. And Detroit was, after the rebellion, the rise of the Black Panther Party, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, and so much other organizing taking place. Yeah. Uh, the writings of, of Jimmy and Grace Boggs have become yeah. much more Republic prevalent. Republic of New Africa. Republic of New Africa, that's right. Um, you, you also have, I mean, so much, the Shrine of the Black Madonna. That's right. Um, I mean, the start of a lot of organizations, uh, right. even not just Focus Hope, Black Family Development. Uh, like, almost like everything is emerging in the shadows, like, soon after 67 in 68 69 70 that's right that's right but 68 is a very 68 is a pivotal year pivotal year and we i went as a 68 i was i don't know i was born in 49 59 69 so that's 68 i was 20 19 years old or something and i Mm -hmm. went to chicago 68 and that was my last attempt in believing that the system could be changed from inside so I got my head bopped in, you know, bopped by the police. And were you prepared, like, because of the other realities like Kent State and so many, so many of the other possible possibilities? And I mean, just the outright murder of John Kennedy, uh, Malcolm X, uh, Robert Martin Ken- Luther King. Robert Kennedy was killed in June of 68. Yeah. yeah, Robert Kennedy. Yeah. Um, like, were you, did you think going to Chicago like this this could be life or death situation no I went to Chicago with the belief that I was still working for Eugene McCarthy who was the outsider of the Democratic Party mm-hmm. who had we had danced in Waukesha Wisconsin um, when Lyndon Johnson announced that he was no longer running nor would he seek the yes. nomination for presidency so uh-huh. I believed I was part of a movement that was mattering in history. 
mm-hmm. because the anti-war movement was doing that to Johnson, and I was beginning to read and understand all these other movements that were emerging, but not really, really understanding them. So when I went to Chicago, I went with the belief that this is my last attempt at trying to get the system to do what it's supposed, what I thought it was supposed to be. I mm-hmm. thought it could be a just system, and you can get a Democratic Party politician or president to run, and the war would end, and the racism would would lessen. I mean, I didn't understand the roots of the history of enslavement and capitalism, and I, I didn't understand all that at, when I was 19, 19 years old. I don't yeah. want you know. But after seeing how the police rioted and how violent they were towards everybody who was there to protest. The Democratic Party pushing Hubert Humphrey, who was the yeah. the legitimate, uh, acceptable person uh, for the Democratic Party, and Mayor Daley, who was a corrupt SOB. And, and um, I mean, the Daley family still, like when we think about families and the hierarchies that go back with wealth tied to this nation, the the Daley family, uh, you know, is definitely one of those families when we talk about Chicago. That's right. That's right. So... So for me, it was, a, to use a phrase, it was a come to Jesus. I got bopped on the head. I had been becoming active. And mm-hmm. from then on in, I never have believed that you can change, the, change America from working within the system. I'm not against people who do that, but I think it has to come from a whole different philosophy and understanding of how change happens. So therefore, my commitment to revolution and I want to use the word revolution at this point in my life, I'm now 70, as a much larger term and understanding of what we learned from previous revolutions of the 20th century or what's emerging now in the 21st century. So it's not a static concept. It's not a uh, stationary word. Um, and it's not a solution just because you use the word. It's a process of transformation, a process of engagement, a process of creating power, a process of influencing power, a process of taking power. But essentially it's what after I started working with Jimmy and Grace Boggs for the last 40-something years, it was Jimmy putting forward in the book Revolution and Evolution in the 20th Century that the purpose of revolution is the evolution of humankind. And even when we say that, we say humankind in relationship to the planet as well as to each other and to ourselves. So the concept is fundamentally much more expansive than it was when I was using that word 45 years ago. All right. What what's happening with your family? Because okay. as you make these strides, like your mother, your your brother, um, the pe- your friends in Brooklyn, what what are well, how are they connected? Well, my brother um, has always been supportive mm-hmm. as a brother. We are very different. Mm-hmm. We have very different lifestyles. Um, my mother would wake up at night and say. How did I raise two children like this? Um, mm-hmm. My brother is an optometrist and has four children and gobs their grandchildren. Uh, and they are living essentially the consumer material American dream. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my mother had many, many challenges accepting who I was. and mm-hmm. But I... As I say that, I always want to say that while she often totally disagreed with what I was doing, and eventually I went to work in a factory for 20 years on the line, 10 years in elected official, and, 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 and 10 or so years with the International Union. She would say I worked with the labor relations, not that I worked on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, I always 
And I think this is the gift and the challenge of parenthood is to be able to give unconditional love regardless Mm -hmm. of what our sons or daughters choose to be or are becoming. So I always felt unconditional love and was able at a relatively younger age to separate approval or disapproval or acceptance from that. So Mm -hmm. we always related to each other as a family. Um, Mm -hmm. She lived in New York, so Mm -hmm. I didn't see her as much as my brother would have seen her and stuff. And um, um, and then once you, we had children, it became closer. Uh, she never believed, this is always a funny story, she never believed that uh, um, I went to college where I actually got a degree. So mm-hmm. when she was like 90-something, I had to make a copy of my, of what do you call degree. it, but the diploma thing, Diplo- right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, she passed away about mm. four or five years ago. She was about 95. My dad died good. very young. Um, he was like 56 and a half hmm. and I was 20. Huh. So almost like as you were getting more and more of involved in revolutions, your father passed. Yes. Um, with that, I, I can, I can only imagine what, what was the work your father did? My father worked in a family business, a, a hand laundry. Mm-hmm. With his father, with his father and his brother-in-law, mm-hmm. and he essentially delivered laundry to people uh, in Brooklyn. He had a carry-all or station wagon. I think mm-hmm. we hit both of the. They still call them station wagons, uh, and he would deliver um, shirts that were ironed, sheets. Um, and, and, um, they had a small place, sort of, I guess more folks would see it more as a, 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 they've probably seen more Chinese laundries more than they have Mm -hmm. other ethnic groups having laundry. But at that point it was a, his family was a Jewish family that had a small, and then what happened was as people began to buy washing machines and dryers, and as that business uh, that went out away. failed and went out mm-hmm. of business, and also when uh, shirts became stay press where you didn't have to iron them, people started buying that. So that put him out of business, and 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 two years later, um, um, or so that happened around sixty seven, sixty eight, right when I went to college, and then for about a year and a half or two years, he worked in the mailroom at the Bank of Boston, mm-hmm. um, and died on his first going. To the doctor before he went on his first two-week vacation wow 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 so just even in learn in seeing someone work and then pass in that way and condolences i can only imagine the impact that that had on someone like you connecting in the labor movement of understanding you know that uh raising your quality of life as you engage in work is very important I think it, it, it's a great question, and, and I probably have not thought about it enough. I mean, I've thought about it. It was easy for me because I was so engaged in my own life yeah. to say capitalism killed him. Mm-hmm. But it was words, right? I believed it. And it was... Um, 
but my life continued on in my own way. It, it, you know, it's being a '60s radical for me, and I won't speak for other people. Um, my political commitments were really a priority in a way that I needed the advice of elders when. So that's he died in 70. So 79 is when Janice and I got married. And if it was up to me, I would have put all my political comrades and friends in the first row of the wedding. Hmm. And it, but it was Jimmy Boggs who said, no, 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 don't be so stupid. You have your family first. They sit up front. Mm-hmm. And then you have your comrades. Mm-hmm. So I, I share that as a way to share, um, for me, you think you know more than you th- know. Uh, and 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 all these much more complex relationships um, get simplified in a period of movement sometimes, something that I think was somewhat prevalent in generation of activists that I was more a part of. So getting into that... Um, in activism, a lot of things. You, you, U of M, and, and eventually your wife Janice. Let's let's talk a little bit about labor movement and what led you into that. So, from U of M, how do you okay. end up working, and then in working in the factory, how do you end up engaging in the labor movement? Okay, this is great. I have no idea where you where you take conversations, so I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in 1970, after three years of activism in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. what was becoming a journey for activists who were student activists. And I consider myself part of the second generation of student activists, people who started SNCC, people who started Students for Democratic Society in the late 50s, early 60s. That was a, one generation where uh, really was the foundation upon which I was, I, I, I come along as a second generation of 67 and a real period of militancy because of the rebellions and the student movement entering a new stage. So 1970, 30 of us decided to move to Detroit, Hmm. who were activists during this period of time uh, in Ann Arbor. And we chose Detroit because um, of a number of reasons. One, there was so much organizing going on. I mean, the revolution was happening here because of the Panthers, the League, um, and, and Republican New Africa and the Shrine. I mean, there was a change table. Those are four tendencies that had emerged in, the, in, in this country from the historical evolution of Detroit. Um, and, 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 and in the writings of Jimmy and Grace Boggs were very, very significant uh, because we had been introduced to some of their writings in, in, in my last year or so in Ann Arbor. And we can stop there. Who introduced you to that writing? I... Th- in, Introdu- so I was introduced to Jimmy and Grace's writings uh, first through the book um, Racism in the Class Struggle, which comes out in 1969, 1970, and speeches. And, um, but it's really when I moved to Detroit, um, I was doing white working class organizing in E-Course, Wyandotte, and Trenton down s- southwest of Detroit here. And we were working with a woman named Betty Mann, um, and uh, she let me know that Jimmy was doing a speech called Beyond Militancy at University of Detroit, mm-hmm. and I went to hear him speak. And um, 
he talked about how militancy wasn't enough for the working class to change. We had to figure out what is the role of unions, what is the role of workers in this period. And that was the initial introduction. Uh, but I came into, the, into Detroit and got a job in a factory and started hmm. working at the Ford Michigan truck plant. I worked 89 days at McLeod Steel, got fired because uh, when the cops stopped me, they, uh, I told them, the, told them who I was. And the next day, and because I had some arrests and some probations and some history with the cops in, from different earlier arrests in Ann Arbor, um, they immediately fired me from McLeod Steel. So my career in steel ended on 89 days uh, and then got a job at the Ford Michigan truck plant in uh, December of 71. Um, and what real, and I was part of at that point Marxist organization, Marxist thinking and, 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 and what challenged me to go towards the writings and work of, of Jimmy and Grace are the following, and I think there's three, and I just shared this with someone recently. One is, so I'm working in the factory, I'm working in the paint shop, and um, it's a new world to me, uh, but it's what I wanted to do. Uh, I, and and uh, as I would be talking about revolution, I would be talking about Vietnam or Cuba or Guinea-Bissau or other countries. Mm -hmm. And they would say, what about the United States? And I say, whoops, I don't know much about the United States. So I had to go back and learn about the United States history. And Jimmy and Grace's ideology was one that was focused on the need for an American revolution, not just a revolution in general or the socialist revolution or the Marxist revolution. It was a particular revolution to a particular country that evolved at a particular time in history in, in particular ways, to keep using that word. So that was one reason. The second was when I was doing the organizing in E-Course and, and Trenton um, and, and Wyandotte, we would do stuff for African Liberation Day. We would do anti-war film showings, films to talk about the women's movement. Uh, picket recruiter stations for mili to stop military recruiters. Um, and we would put out a magazine called Down the River, a little newspaper actually, hadn't thought about this in a while. And we'd, deliver it, we'd give it out in the parks. Then we'd go to Burger Kings and McDonald's and we'd talk to young people. We were only very young 20s and they were 16, 17. And I was astounded, amazed at the language of young whites around racism. Mm -hmm. Their, the ease with which they could use words like spear chucker, go back to Africa, the N-word, et cetera, et cetera, was mind-boggling to me. Because most radicals, white radicals, see the history of racism and capitalism as separate and see racism as the result of capitalist economic divisions of the working class. Mm -hmm. And what I was seeing was so deep, was such a cultural phenomenon, such a, as Jimmy eventually shared with me and shared with everybody as part of his writings, White folks got 
racism and racist attitudes through the milk, the breast milk of their mothers. And Jimmy and Grace's historical analysis was the, the unity of race and class emerging historically in our country. There's not a separation between capitalism and racism. You would not have had capitalism in the way it emerged without this, racism with this, at that point yeah. the slave trade and eventually yeah, racism and even and that's even, not the common and that's why the crisis we face in this country is everybody's talking they want to be anti-racist white folks want to be anti-racist but they don't want to be anti-capitalist mm -hmm. and you can't be anti-capitalist without being anti-racist and you can't be anti-racist without being anti-capitalist mm -hmm. but we don't take on that authentic conversation because we don't authentically understand the history of our country. And the relationship. And the relationship, the integrated relationship inherent. And even before, even even with the trans, the Mayafa or transatlantic slave trade or the enslavement of my people, you still have the massacre of native people, you know, and in that along the lines of racism as well. Like uh, even the whole concept of, you know, the Spanish-American war, quote, unquote in you know it, it's it's very deep it's very very deep the relationship between racism and the foundation of america in american systems exactly. uh let me so, just say the third reason which is important and i, I don't want to get away from it mm -hmm. because i think you're absolutely right the genocide of indigenous people here and then the enslavement of african americans is what builds capitalism and that there's no separation between those three phenomena Mm -hmm. The other thing that became much more clear to me was folks who I was working with, predominantly white, but eventually growing numbers of, 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 of black folks and people of color in the plant, was how much the white working class had internalized the values of capitalism, yeah. the values of individualism, the values of materialism, the values of, of, of meism and, and, and I don't care about, it's about me, and if I succeed economically, that's what matters. Uh, so the internalization of values. It wasn't the Karl Marx world of people just coming in from the countryside and then working in a plant, but they had already had 50 years of being in, moving forward as immigrants to becoming white to incorporating the values of materialism. Mm -hmm. And and, and the, th the last part was with guys I was with who had come back from Vietnam, white as well as black, there was so much trauma, so much pain from being in Vietnam, and too much of it, it's always too much, was taken out on how their own, because of their own anger and hurt, was taken out on their children and their spouses, their wives at this point. These are guys. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from the significance of the women's movement was that I could create this space in the conversation with these guys about women's liberation, and their own need to, the personal was political. So how they related to their wives and their children was part of them overcoming their own hurt. And that made the need for the internal revolution as significant as the external revolution. Mm -hmm. and, and so this whole question of values and transformation 
in the early 70s became very much part of the work. And, and Jimmy and Grace understood that we needed a two-sided revolution, uh, not just the revolution against the enemy outside, but the internalization of the values, whether it was materialism, individualism, racism, patriarchy, and so forth. So I, because we're there, and I do want to come back to have questions about just the labor movement and your experience and just working in the plant as well, uh, because that's so connected to Detroit and Michigan culture as it exists. And I do feel that uh, unlike uh, my current president said the other day, the manufacturing is coming back. But the whole concept of the industrial age and industrial work writings from <laughs> Jimmy Boggs is completely changing. And, and that's being uh, in it, its completely changed like a, a lot of what he prophesized into what would happen of the industrial revolution many people talked about but he spoke about it from instead of thinking of it as a system he he talked about it impacting people and people's lives so as i'm speaking about the writings of jimmy box that i've become more familiar with over time and it's like wow this is this is so unique just to hear this perspective what was it like for you to read this information and then build an actual personal relationship with him and Grace because it's almost like, you know, um, you are interpreting the philosophy, but now you actually have the opportunity to personally witness how this looks in a family structure, how this looks in an interpersonal relationship with neighbors in the neighborhood, in the community, in organizing. Like, what was that experience like? So when I, when I hired into the plant, there were, I don't know, four or five of us out of eight in the paint booth whose name was Rich. Okay. Soon after that, my name became Rick. Uh, okay. Because you have to find a new name tag for yourself, right? You Everybody, Rich F. I was, it wasn't Rich F. I, I, the people began to call me Rick. Uh -huh. And I say that because if I went back to that paint booth now, there would be no Rich or Rick. It would only be a robot. You got that right. Okay. And Jimmy, in his 1963 book, The American Revolution, Pages from a Negro Worker's Notebook, talks about the end of the jobs as we know it, the end of the, the technological revolution that's taking place, and the permanent displacement of people, um, and the creation of the underclass. Um, which leads to all the stuff, all the reasons so many folks are in prison and, 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 and so much permanent, permanent under unemployment, under unemployment in our country, permanent unemployment. And it's only intensified since the 80s and now is on steroids beyond our imagination with this new stage of, of, of the um, uh, fourth industrial revolution. So... Jimmy writes and understands that workers would be were becoming more and more bought buying into the American economic system mm -hmm. because you were not only getting a paycheck you were now being able to participate in the consumer society mm -hmm. you were able to work some serious overtime if you wanted to would come and go, right? I mean, mm -hmm. but when it was there, so what happened in the 
So after 10 years of being in the eight or nine years in the plant in the 70s, where the economy was somewhat expanding, uh, by 1980, a few things had happened. People were beginning to buy European and Japanese cars because they had recovered from World War II. The energy crisis had happened in 1973, which we saw gas go from 22 cents a gallon up to a dollar and a half, two dollars. Um, and jobs as the 80s were beginning to happen were seeing much more technological displacements for robots. Mm-hmm. And we have the 1980s, which is this massive moment in Detroit yeah. with people, tens of thousands of people being on cheese lines, unemployment lines before they had the computers, you know, thousands of people out there. And it reminded us of the 30s. But what was different was two things. One, it was followed very quickly by the crack epidemic in our city and the pain that that all brought. And I was in a factory where people drove 30 or 40 miles in different directions or 20, 30. Some came from the east side of Detroit. Others came from Flint. Some people came from Toledo. Some people came from Jackson, Michigan. People came from all different places. So the only thing you had in common was the dollar bill. And that's what Jimmy was writing about, that they didn't have a common historical experience anymore. They didn't have a community that they were part of as, 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 as anything. So the union became a place to make as much as you can and then go live your life. So as early as the 70s, they never had quorums for union meetings. People weren't coming to union meetings in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and... When the 80s come, 40% of Ford Motor Company employees are laid off. Um, I was working in a factory that at that point made the F-Series and the Bronco. Bronco's now coming back. Um, And half the plant gets laid off. And we worked nine, ten hours a day, six days a week while the whole shift was laid off. And when I went to organize people to go on a stop overtime um, demonstration at Ford Motor Company. It was me and a few other folks. Yeah. Because people said, like, give me my free give, money. That's free money. I got I to work money. the overtime because I'm not going to be here tomorrow, right? Exactly. So there's no sense of social give relations. Me a Cadillac. That's right. There's no <laughs> sense of rela- social relations in the plant. But the yeah. gift it gave me, and I don't know how to express this, of how significant it was. To be able to work in a facility with people who totally disagree with you, mm-hmm. who think you're very weird, as well as a few people who really, really respect you, but basically most think you're like strange, mm-hmm. um, allowed me to learn so much from people. And it's allowed me to understand the pulse of America in a particular way that I think too often activists and radicals want to romanticize consciousness or, or, or not realize how, what it means to create relationships and, and, and critical connections with mm-hmm. people to learn and listen. Um, 
people who are in the Ku Klux Klan would put out newsletters against me when I ran for union office. Mm-hmm. And knowing I had to work in the same place with them meant I could totally disagree with them, but I could also figure out how to have conversations with them. Um, their children changed because they eventually got jobs in the plant. Um, so you see a, a generational change. And I guess I'm just saying the gift of being in the same place and you know, and working in the same place for so many years was a, a, a gift of, of relationships and learning from people. And then by the end of the 80s for me, um, I was getting ready to quit. And I wanted to remind myself of what it was like to be in the plan. And so I did an oral history book called End of the Line, Auto Workers in the American Dream, which you can get for a dollar on Amazon. Um, but it's a great prophetic book about what's happening to the American manufacturing journey and American unions, industrial unions. So, so back to the union. You, I'm sorry, you want to go to the union? So I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that. But like I said, during this time, you're developing a, a stronger relationship with Jimmy Bob. Uh, so what was it like, you know, to be able to connect with him and, and know his theories and still have uh, like a, a, a personal relationship with him? Because it's not like, you know, it, it, you, he's writing something that it's like, OK, it, I believe in this. I see the philosophy. I see the truth. Furthermore, you just answered something that I just went through today with a guy on the line. Um, what was it like building that uh, personal relationship while, and, and witnessing that? So. In the 70s and 80s, my relationship and work with Jimmy and Jimmy and Grace was with something that became the National Organization for an American Revolution. Mm -hmm. What that meant for me was not only the big picture of how do you create leadership and vision for the next American Revolution, but it was always being challenged it was is being challenged to ask questions so if you remember the poll town struggle here where general motors the uaw and coleman young come together and push out some 5000 people from the hamtramck area and and so forth to build a a plant that gets hundreds of millions of dollars in tax abatements um Jimmy writes a piece, a job ain't the answer. And here's a guy who I respect, and, and I'm saying, what do you mean a job ain't the answer? Because hmm. he was posing community versus jobs, mm-hmm. because here's a community being destroyed, so there could be more jobs. Quote, unquote, job creation. Right? Quote, Even though it never unquote. creates the jobs, right? It never creates anything more than a couple thousand jobs for a short period of time. Po- yeah, possibly. You know, possibly. I'm probably exaggerating that it clearly never got to the 6,000 jobs Um, and he you know so in the personal relationship I was always engaged in conversations that challenged me to think about what 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 would people be doing what would people be doing in five or 10 or 15 years or 20 years? Mm-hmm. And not just think you could manage the crisis of the pain that people are experiencing. Yeah, Jimmy was the kind of person that 
if you went over and you shared what was going on in a union election or uh, a discussion, um, he had experienced very similar ones decades before. And what he challenged me to do was to see that if we weren't going to struggle about how human beings define themselves, and rather than define themselves as just economic beings, consumers or producers, but as human beings with families, with, with, the, with committed to relationship building, to see themselves as citizens governing this country. Because that's what a revolution is about. It's about governing with new kinds of values. It's becoming a different kind of human being, right? So he made a very concrete how the conversations I would have in the plant really, really mattered. Wow. Um, and, and that was a gift. And here was a, 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 a black guy who was born and raised in Marion Junction, Alabama, who, as he said, lived through agriculture, industry, and now automation. And he never looked over his shoulder about human beings can be much more and grander than we are. And he, it, 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 he was obviously... Um, never forgetful of the history, uh-huh. but he was driven by the vision of how human beings can change. So how do we challenge people? A job yeah. isn't enough, right? Um, how do we create community? So in that same vein, that I, I want to get back to the union a little bit, but I want to fast forward to today. Because it's so much community development. I just did a, a talk with uh, someone, you know, one of our mutual friends, Yusef Shakur, about community development. And I think we're going to pick up that conversation because I was surprised the interest in the conversation and uh, the way that community development is is used, the, the capitalism of it, you know, and what becomes of a community benefits ordinance. And, you know, what's the benefit for the community? And usually it's always underlined around a job and we can create jobs if. You know, this project deserves this much tax abatement, blah, 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 blah. Right now on that same pulse in a in where Detroit is now. um, So much has changed. But still, this idea that employment is that gateway to quality of life. Is a prevalent thought process. this is more of a philosophical question for you as of right now. What's your take on employment and the role it plays today? And, and also, how do we raise the quality of life for people? Or, or more so, I guess the question more so is, is employment a gateway to that? And how should we really look at employment in 2020? So I think in 2020, there's, which is now the 10th year anniversary of the U.S. Social Forum, where some 20,000 folks came from all over the world under the banner, another world is possible, uh-huh. another U.S. is necessary. And when they came to Detroit, we said another Detroit was happening. And in the last 10 years, the amount of political work that has emerged in community regardless of what the corporations or the government has done, has been astounding. Mm -hmm. And you can go from 
the massive increase in the urban farming movement to Detroit yeah. Black Food Security Network on yeah. the cusp of creating the food co-op, which will be a center and a real convergence of a movement that has emerged for some 20 years around urban farming and food security and healthy eating mm -hmm. and so forth, all in the commitment to create community. You can go to uh, places like Yusuf Shakur's Community House, uh -huh. Burwood Street House, Freedom Freedom Street House, your space here becoming centers of thinking and caring and and relationships with people in the community or relationships in the city or even international where people are leaving behind the failed strategies of I can do it myself, we need to create interdependent relationships. We can go to look around Detroit and see Can Arts, which has created, uh, uh, builds these small windmills that can get people off the grid. Or we can go to Solidarity or Ali Durell, who does this amazing work around uh, solar, solar uh, energy. There's nothing preventing us from creating community and creating what we call, and Ron Scott used the phrase, peace zones for life or liberated zones, to imagine that we're at the stage now and over the next 10 years, we'll see a convergence of these communities that transcend the J-O-B economy uh -huh. and the employment as the key to what it means to be living in Detroit. People will make a, make a living, but the living is also around things like the new technology that emerges with Fab Labs and the Fab City movement and Inside Focus and wow. Blair Evans. It emerges with the artists that are doing so much creative work um, around murals and, and, and art classes and with young people. Um, it emerges. So we're at a period of and I'm going to take it back to community benefits because we now on the east side of Detroit have faced fiat expanding 5,000 new jobs. But the challenge of the community benefits struggle there was the ability of people to come together in the community to put together a vision for a local sustainable community initiative. So we talked about solar and wind restorative justice centers and Myrtle Thompson Curtis from Freedom Freedom stood up and said, it's more important. It's one thing to hire returning citizens. It's another thing to create communities that don't create returning citizens. Yeah. You know, those kind of conversations. And we have enough technology now through Fab Labs and through the miniaturization of that thing called the iPhone. Uh -huh. And, you know... And, and international communications like you're able to do with podcasts yeah. that we can be creating and building everything we need in our own community. And we don't need to rely on those corporations. We need to build housing that's off the grid. Mm -hmm. And that's where you were so wonderful in helping our family do this community land trust little mm -hmm. kick that we're, we're doing on the east side. Um, and... So I think we're at a time where, as is often said, people can imagine the end of the planet early, faster than they can imagine the end of capitalism, and they can imagine the end of capitalism 
before they can imagine the end of jobs. Jobs are a new phenomena. They're only a couple hundred years old. We need to work. We've always worked. People have always yeah. had purpose in life and meaning, but it wasn't always the master-slave or the corporate boss, boss versus yes. labor, right? Those are all new short-term historical phenomena. Uh -huh. And that's what's coming to an end when we say it's the end of an epoch in human history. Um, and the birth of a new one. And it's not going to, it's a cultural as well as it's economic and politics. The Democratic Party and the electoral politics, well, we got to be Trump, is not an answer to local community vision. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of self government that needs to emerge. Yeah. You know, so we need to become different kinds of people, which is what I think Jimmy was raising in What About the Workers and much of their writings. The power of the idea. Mm -hmm. and turning that idea into focus. So with that, as we come to a close, I'm going to definitely welcome you back because I still feel like we only got to like some of it. But before I go there, it's so much work you do. What are some of the projects at the Bog Center uh, that you're working on now uh, and other projects you're connected with? That's a great way for me to have a chance to end, so I appreciate it a lot. One uh -huh. is... Obviously, RiverWise is a real gift to Detroit, and I, I get to share it with people and have conversations with people, and I run around trying to find some good stories. Um, we're now working on this east side with a number of many different organizations called— and wait, on, on that RiverWise point, RiverWise, community-led, uh, journalism— Great magazine, great artistry, cool people, but they're also a part of the Detroit is Different podcast network. You'll be hearing some Riverwise podcasting soon. They're actually podcasting a little bit later today. Right, but, and okay. that's it. And without you, they wouldn't be doing podcasts. So thank you, and I say that from the top and bottom of my heart. Um, the so on the east side, as a post community benefits struggle that went on with the fiat. We now have an ongoing group that's talking about and committed to creating um, some kind of marketplace, uh, some kind of gathering space on the east side that brings together a lot of these conversations that I just shared. Um, and um, the, I, I, I think it's at the time, and I know labor is important and unions are important, we need to create labor unions of a new type, labor unions that respect the sustainability of communities, the relationships of communities. So the dream is that on the east side of Detroit, we need to figure out how to build housing that's off the grid where people who are working in that plant want to now live in the plant and not just drive in and out from that east side where there's going to be 10,000 people. And some friends in the UAW who are committed to making that happen are the folks that, that I'll be working with. The last thing that the new exciting part of what, uh, what I'm doing um, – is working, doing a lot of, recommitting myself to working among white folks, particularly in the suburbs, um, and, and working on um, a group with a group called Break Our Silence Suburban Organizing Coalition. Um, and one of the things we're working on is educating South Oakland County on the history of Royal Oak Township and how it was destroyed as suburban white subur suburbs were created. Um, and those white suburbs were everything from Pleasant Ridge to Huntington Woods to Royal Oak to Madison Heights to um, Oak Park and Ferndale, and how those places became um, 
sucked the life out of Royal Oak Township, which was a predominantly black uh, community, um, and saw it change physically and racially and economically, and now talking about some truth towards reconciliation and reparations so that the curriculum in those schools learn the real history of the place and not just talk about how we need to deal with the, the, the changing of our own racist attitudes, but how we need to really concretely rebuild a new historical understanding of what will those suburbs become in the future when they understand how they were really, really built. Mm -hmm. So that's a new thing we're working on that I'm really excited about. Um, and, and I also was doing some, a dream of changing the name of Macomb County from Macomb, who was a slave owner, to something else as a way to kick off some of this conversation. Okay. Um, and um, folks in the suburbs, in Oakland County in particular, have a great responsibility to not only Detroit, but the fact that places like Somerset Mall exist, which is the epitome of materialism and consumption, that's what has destroyed the planet. Mm -hmm. And the people in Oakland County have a responsibility towards their children and grandchildren, let alone the children and grandchildren and people in Syria across the Southern Hemisphere to realize we can no longer live as 4% of the population using 25% of the world's resources. That's coming to an end whether we like it or not. So all of this moment provides an opportunity for us to look at what kind of planet are we part of, what kind of human beings do we want to be, and who do we want to have those relationships with. So... Okay. And this has all come from all the learning I've got from meeting people like you and oh, all these other folks around that have been a gift. I've had a gift of 45, 50 years of activism and thinking, and all I want to do is give back as much as I can. Well, definitely, definitely. Um, I, I look to get you back. We're going to uh, get some more information. Thank you so much, Rich. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.